giving thanks, thanksgiving, or thanksgiving, giving thanks. And uh, we're going to, for four weeks, we're going to be talking about uh, what the Bible has to say about thanksgiving, and then just the dynamic that happens with us as we're exploring um, faithfulness, faithfulness as God's people. And uh, we'll be debunking a few things that I think we get, we get wrong about thanksgiving and gratitude in our heart and in our faith. And we'll be talking about the Hebrew, or, or the Hebrew view of gratitude. It's deep and powerful and meaningful. So when I was 10, 11 years old, um, I was in a bowling tournament. I used to bowl as part of a bowling league. And I had uh, a few friends, and we created a team. And our bowling team, we entered this all-city tournament. And we were competing, in this, and two of the guys on this bowling team were like two of the best bowlers in the state. Um, I, think, I think it was, uh, you can Google this, if it's anywhere in the Google sphere, uh, the youngest bowler in Washington state to bowl a perfect game, um, I think he was 11 years old, and it was Gary Boston, and he was my best friend growing up and on my bowling team. Great, great bowler. And uh, so I was not as great, and, but I was on this bowling team. And d- we were in this tournament, all-city tournament, big deal, uh, and, and I bowled one of the worst games of my life, or series. One, I just didn't do well that day. I remember I was feeling kind of sick, and for some reason I didn't have my bowling ball, so I was using my mom's bowling ball right? With your buddies who are like thinking about becoming professional bowlers, they've got their custom balls, their custom shoes, and, and I've got my mom's bowling ball. It was this big yellow flowery thing with her name engraved on it with hearts on it, and boy, that was embarrassing, and I'm bowling this, and I just bowled terribly, and I just got mad, you know, the kind of mad where you like kick the ball return on your way back, and you're just frustrated, and I'm embarrassed and humiliated. Then I'm embarrassed by the way I'm acting, but I'm 11, what do I know, you know? And uh, I just, my whole day was ruined because I bowled really terribly. Well, it turns out our team won the tournament. And I was so frustrated that I bowled poorly that I got no joy from winning the tournament, none. I remember sending, there's a picture of me somewhere of our whole team being presented the trophy. And there's this championship trophy that went to our sponsoring lane and then we all got individual trophies. And everyone's there smiling and I'm sitting there just mad. Because I was so focused on myself that, that I did poorly. I didn't get to experience the joy of the team winning the the tournament. I missed out. I even missed out on, like afterwards, there was like an awards banquet pizza party for the team at this local arcade pizza place, and I was so mad that I just got on my bike and went home, and I skipped the party. So I was so embarrassed and mad and frustrated that I didn't bowl well. I bet you've had in your life those times where you're just so frustrated about something, you just can't see a reason to be grateful. You just can't see hope. I think we've all been there, and we all have that capacity to do that. Like, I just, 
for some reason I just can't see. And, and, and you're so into your own frustration, you don't even want to see gratitude or hope or reason. You're just convinced that your view of what is going on is ruining your day and it's so bad it's worthy of ruining your day. We all have been in that frame of mind and the irony for me in thinking about this bowling game, this bowling tournament, this bowling tournament is designed for a team to compete against a team. There is no individual winner. The team wins. So even if I would have bowled a perfect game, that wasn't the purpose. There was no acknowledgement. Because the goal, the purpose, the way the tournament is designed is for the team and not for me. But I bet if I would have bowled a perfect game and I still had that mindset, like this is about me, I still would have ruined it and made it about me, <laughs> in a, just in a different way. And I think that applies to our relationship with God because I think we miss out on the assurance of peace and, and gratitude and the celebration of what it means to be uh, secure in our relationship with him when we take something that's intended to be focused on let's say God or God's plan or God's kingdom and we put on the lens of self and we can look around our life at suffering and struggle and pain at offenses at even like stuff that comes out of insecurity and fear and we can look at all that and go and, and make a judgment that things aren't good things aren't okay because I'm not comfortable or I'm frustrated or I'm insecure or I'm embarrassed or I've failed so things can't be okay. Someone's offended me. Somebody's hurt me. Things can't be okay. And the invitation that God makes that, uh, in Scripture is this in Hebrews 12, 28 and 29. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably, with reverence and awe, for God is a consuming fire. When we, as God's people, put our perspective on God's kingdom and, and, and take ourselves out of the spotlight, we're able to look at and value what God's desires are for this world, what God's desires are, and we're able to look at the things that frustrate us and, and literally put them into a God-sized perspective, and they get a lot smaller your problems get a lot smaller when you realize you're not the center of the universe and your problems don't exist to frustrate you. We have problems and struggles because we live in a fallen world where uh, God's kingdom has not yet come to earth as it is in heaven. But if we look at our pain and our struggles, our discomfort and our preferences, and we say, I can't see good because I'm offended or frustrated, we're missing out on being blessed by God's will being done. Another way to say this is Psalm 106.1 says, Praise the Lord, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, his love endures forever. For God is good and his love endures forever. The endurance of his love forever gives us the security and the peace to put our hope in that so we can have God's perspective. And as it says in the psalm, God has declared in, in Genesis 1, 
He has declared what he thinks about the world. Right? We have the story of creation day by day. And God creates the oceans. He creates the oceans. It's amazing to think what God created with the oceans. And at the end of that day of creating this vast expanse of water between the earth and the sky, he creates the oceans. And you know what he says about that creation when he's done? He says, it is good. But you might think, hey, I've been to the ocean here in Oregon, and that ocean, like, it's claimed lives. People have surfed, surfed out there and died. Fishermen have drowned. Pirates would war. Wars wage at the ocean. There's nuclear subs under the ocean. There's, how could you call the ocean good? Or I go to the ocean. I've been to the ocean. I dip my toe in the water, and it was cold. That's not good. How could you call that good? My perspective, my angle, my experience is that it was cold. But God created the oceans, and he says it's good. So our path to finding that peace of, of gratitude, of thankfulness, is to agree with God that it's good. Yes, there's tragedy, but when he created the ocean, he says it's good. And we get some perspective in that, and uh, the invitation to us is to, to grab God's perspective and agree with him that it is good. Because here's some stats about the ocean that you may not know. Or maybe you do. The ocean covers 70% of the surface of our planet. This one blew my mind. The ocean is home to 94% of all life on Earth is in the ocean. (laughs) Our climate is regulated by the ocean. The ocean provides more than half of the oxygen we breathe. For God's intended purposes, for God's perspective, after he creates the ocean, he says it is good. He creates fish, stinky, slimy, gross fish. You can go, I don't like fish. They're stinky. I don't want to touch fish. God created fish and he said they're good. And then he said that he, he thought fish were so good, he gave him a command. He said, you fish, you're so good. Go be fruitful and multiply. We want more fish. God doubled down on fish. So our perspective and our experience with fish doesn't determine whether they're good or bad. And the reason is, you and I aren't God. I know, I think we can all agree on that. I'm not God. You're not God. If you think you're God, I'd love to talk to you. That would be fascinating. So this, whether or not something is good or evil or good or bad, doesn't revolve around us. God has said all of creation is good. At the end of creation, on the sixth day, he creates mankind. And when he looks back at all of his creation, he he adds something. It's not just good. He says, it's very good. So the people in your life or the people in our world, think about it. Like there's people that I think we'd have a hard time calling some people good. People who offended us or hurt us or some of the most notorious criminals that have done horrible things to other people. We'd have a hard time at all looking at them and say there's any, 
any ounce of good in them. How could we call some of these people good? Sinful people. But when God looked back at creation, after creating mankind, he said that it was very good. And who was he talking about? Adam and Eve. They sinned. But God called them very good. So there is an eternal value, an eternal purpose, an eternal perspective in God's kingdom that is not changed or shaken by our experiences on earth. Think about that. So when you have someone in your life who's offended you or hurt you, because of the work of Jesus Christ and what he's done on the cross, the redemptive nature of Jesus I get this from, I'll explain this, I'll get this from, uh, in, in the, towards the end of the book of John, Jesus is quoted as saying that God does not, God the Father does not judge. He doesn't judge us. God has left judgment up to his son. So there is a judgment. But the son with his very life has made a judgment on all of mankind and said, you're forgiven. So God's view of us through Jesus is very good. And God's view of your neighbor and even your enemy, he sees the very good. Now, whether or not someone receives the forgiveness and lives in the freedom of God viewing them as very good, that's a different story. But Jesus has died on the cross and rose from the grave to uh, redeem all mankind unto God. So the judgment's already been made of forgiveness. And so we can either look at our problems and look at the people in our life and look at stinky fish and cold oceans and make a judgment that it's not good or we can agree with God and say despite or even in the face of my struggles, my suffering, my preferences, my frustrations, there is good. And when we can see good, and that's one of the things we're going to be going deeper in in this series is the Hebrew concept of gratitude. And there's a phrase we're going to study in the next few weeks uh, that literally means to find the good. And that's what gratitude is in the Hebrew concept, to find the good. You know what that implies? That it's not presenting itself. Like you have to find it. You have to choose gratitude. Because what I find is that gratitude, the posture of gratitude or the, the enjoying the freedom of, and peace that comes from this posture of thankfulness and agreeing with God isn't a subconscious thing. It's not like blinking or breathing or your heart beating. It is a decision and a choice. So enjoying the freedom of thanksgiving comes from believing God's view that it's very good and giving thanks. And that's where your heart enjoys the freedom of thanksgiving. Because you're taking your focus off yourself as the judge. It's a very, very huge overlay with this that I encourage you further study. I won't go into it today, but with the uh, continuing the creation story, the Garden of Eden and Adam and Eve and the tree of knowledge of good and evil, where man, you know, 
if we are going to start grabbing the gavel away from God and making the de determination as to what's good and what's evil, we're playing God and we are not going to enjoy the freedom of thanksgiving and peace that comes from believing God's judgment that it's good. So the reason he gives us, uh, as we read in Hebrews, the reason he gives us that we always have reason for hope is our eternity, our assurance is secure. So no matter what's going on in our life, no matter what's suffering, it's all going to work out. Turn your attention to the book of Romans chapter 8. Uh, Mary's going to put the text on the screen. Starting at verse 17. And I'm going to read uh, 11 verses here. Um, starting at verse 17 of Romans 8. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed, for the creation was subjected to frustration not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. In hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage. Its bondage to decay. And it will be brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. You see this? It's in this hope, when we believe in the promises of God, we put our hope in our blessed assurance. We believe that when, when we look at things around us and it doesn't seem good, God has already declared it's good and we are God's children and we get the inheritance of the culmination of the good in the hope that is ours. For in this hope we are saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait, we wait patiently. I love the honesty of this. The honesty of this is saying, like, yes, the ocean is cold. Yes, someone did frustrate you. And yes, fish are slimy. And yes, the world is broken and fallen. And in the midst of this suffering... There's nothing compared to the glory to come. And that gives us hope. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but, for the, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance to the will of God. And we know that in all things, God works for the good 
of those who love him, who have been called according to this purpose. This invitation to put our hope in God's plan, in God's love for us, and in our position as his children is what gives us a foundation for the healing and the hope that comes from choosing a heart of gratitude in the midst of our struggles. I think it's kind of silly to say in a church setting and look at the Bible to say, hey, just it's all going to be okay. Just, just pretend that everything's fine or, or act like everything's going to be fine. And, and Scripture, Jesus, God, they never ask us to do that. They ask us to look at the things that are wrong in this world and trust that God is even greater than these things, that he is a plan that's going to restore a new heaven and a new earth, and that hope is coming. And that hope, that love that is coming to bring restoration and heaven to earth, the gates of hell cannot hold it back. And that's our our accurate judgment that there is suffering and struggle in this world. And it would be a certain kind of evil if a God put us in the midst of some of this struggle if he didn't believe that we were strong enough to overcome it. He wouldn't put us in the path of suffering that we can't overcome. Right? He will not do that. That's a promise from Scripture. And that's just what a loving God would do. We put our children in positions where they have to grow and struggle to overcome things so they can get character. And, right? and with the suffering that we face, God uses that to make us stronger. When I, when I, when I frame it like this, I see hope. I see, and it makes my heart go... I'm so thankful that I am God's child and he is my God. I'm thank, and I'm assured by that by my personal relationship with him, not, not from my theology and my, my framework of, you know, my philosophical framework of eternal creation versus Big Bang and, and all that nonsense. Like, all that's fun for me, like it's like brain candy, but it has nothing to do with the foundation of my faith. The foundation of my faith is a personal relationship with a living God who loves me. And when I am suffering, when I am struggling, when I'm being a knucklehead, he still looks at me and says, you're very good. And boy, that cultivates a heart of of gratitude. Now, uh, next week we're going to be talking about the theology of gratitude and how empty it is. And I want to bring that up now to hopefully get your brain thinking. Because I don't know how many years of my faith and my relationship with God, it was, it was basically this. It was, uh, I'm a sinner saved by grace. So if I wasn't saved, I'd be condemned to eternal hell. But because I'm saved by grace, through Jesus Christ and his resurrection, I don't have the consequence of hell, which I admit I deserve. So because I am eternally secure in heaven, I am forever grateful to God. And out of that gratitude, 
I find the strength to try to obey and try to serve. And then, and then, in, and then this is what I thought grace was. So the grace of God, and the sanctification is, in my gratitude I try to obey because I'm so thankful that I'm not going to hell. And in that gratitude I try to obey and sometimes I forget that I'm thankful and I sin and I'm forgiven and I can grow and my gratitude is strengthened. I'm convinced that there are many, many people who think that they are Christians and that is their framework of their faith. Gratitude is their God. Gratitude is what they're depending on for the assurance of their salvation. And there's just enough truth in that to resonate with all the sermons that we heard that we kind of half listened to when we've been attending church and um, the Bible passage that we randomly read and the Bible study we went through that we didn't really look at and, and we can kind of piece these pieces together to create this hodgepodge of some gratitude theology. And I, if that's you, I hope you're as uncomfortable hearing this because uh, I don't know where all of you are in your faith and I know that for me this was part of my growth process was wrestling with this very thing but the invitation and the promises of God aren't based on gratitude they're based on like, like why do we follow Jesus why do we obey why do we find peace and have a heart of peace and thankfulness and gratitude not because of what it gets us, which is the linchpin of what's wrong with that other framework, is I follow God because it gets me out of hell. That's a completely selfish motivation. That's closer to classic Satanism than it is Christianity because it's all about self. When the invitation from God is, I want a relationship with you because I love you. Do you know why we are saved? Do you know why God sent Jesus? God came to earth. Because he loves you. Your father in heaven loves you. And if love is your reason, your desire to obey is selfless. Because it's rooted in love. It's the only thing that can handle that type of transaction. And if you have a family member, if you have a child, you understand there's nothing they could or couldn't do that would change the thing you call love for them. You'll get frustrated with them, and they'll have consequences. But the thing that you would say is love for them is unconditional. That's the... That's, coming off this, this 52 days of prayer series and especially Thursday night culminating in one of the most moving evenings of worship I've ever had. Um, to hear the voices coming together and to be led in humility to, to, to commune together with the person of God in such a beautiful setting. Like, it just inspires my thankfulness that my loving God is pursuing a relationship with me not the idea of me, but 
like me. And I have a relationship with him, and I love him. And I would, that is the, the reason we do what we do, is we want and desire for you to cultivate a close relationship with the person of God. And out of that will come, you'll see reasons to overcome your frustration and your, your offenses and believe that there is good beyond the suffering. And if it comes from a heart of love, then it's pure. Gratitude isn't enough. I'm going to ask the band to come back up. And uh, we're going to close in worship. And this, uh, we rotate through some spiritual disciplines every Sunday, if you've noticed. Um, and this week, the focus is on giving. And uh, I want to encourage you, if Village Church is your home, um, when you give, it helps enact ministry. One thing we like to say is when you give, ministry happens. We're an independent church funded by us. So uh, our, our dreams and plans and our momentum is way bigger than our bank balance. And so there's always reasons and ways for us to, to be enacted and, and bringing the light of Jesus to this world. Because when I look around at the world, I see a lot of reasons to not call it good. If I'm looking at it through my own lens, I look at the world and I see so much. I'm like, I can't call that good. I can't call that God. But my God, who is in control, my God, whose inheritance we are secured and assured of, my God, whose plan I am submitting to, and therefore all things are going to work for the good of those of us who are called according to that purpose. All of that. I can see and find the good and cling to the good. You can too. And imagine the influence that we get to have during this season of Thanksgiving. Imagine the influence you can have on your family and your communities when somebody, maybe at your Thanksgiving table or someone at a family event or someone at work, starts whining and complaining about how terrible the world is. And you get to be a presence of peace that reminds them that you agree with God and it's all good. It's very good. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just thank you for your word today and pray that uh, you would help us to see the good, help us find the good, and that we would, in, in thanksgiving, declare the good, God. When we, when we give thanks, we're declaring that we are owning and claiming the good. And there is so much good. There's so much good. There's good when we gather and we see each other and we encourage one another. It's good when I hear other voices agreeing with me, agreeing with you when we sing these songs that declare your glory and your majesty, that, that declare hope and meaning and purpose. When I hear others affirming that seeing this good is right and worth it, it, it inspires me and gives me even more hope and strengthens me, God. We need each other. God, I, I pray that as we worship today, your spirit would reign and we would see the mission and the ministry that we are about here as something worthy of our, our hope, our time, our investment, and our care. 
that we would protect your church, that we would uh, guide her mission, and we would live in the unity that your spirit brings. Thank you for what you're doing here, and I pray for your blessing uh, as we worship you that you are blessed and that we are blessed in blessing with our worship. In Jesus' name, amen.